Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. End of the year, we still got a couple of exciting weeks left of NFL football. We've got bowls coming up. We've got hiatus in golf and NASCAR, but we're always ready to focus on the biggest issues of the week. And for that, the new year will start just around the corner, but a great year behind us with the head of intergalactic global digital video for Reuters, Dan Colarusso. Is that the right title? Are we changing it for 2017? It's going to be changed to 2017 for the purposes of this show to Executive Editor, comma, Digital. That that's, will suffice. The intergalactic part, it's just hard to manage across the time zones. You can call me digital, global, but I will not sit out a bowl game like young Christian McCaffrey and Leonard Fournette. Well, all right, so we're not calling you Fournette and we're not calling you McCaffrey, and it'll be interesting to see what our friends at Stanford and LSU really feel as they kind of look at this stuff, because I totally agree with you. I know we texted back and forth with each other as they're trying to sit out their bowl games to protect themselves, and it's tragic, it's inappropriate to get ready for the NFL draft, which, by the way, is in May by sitting out a bowl game in December. I don't get it. Do you? I Look, I get it. Um, what I don't get... Um is how this sets up the future. I mean, look, you and I were at the Heisman's last year, and McCaffrey was a finalist, right? And it was a great, right. it's a great, he was a great story. It's like football, second generation, star football player, Stanford, like the whole deal. Um, and, and, for, and, and when you look at the great tradition of football, and it's about the teammates, and you're all in the huddle together, and, you know, you're fighting, and it's a war, and all this stuff, and then it's, okay, guys, sorry, I got a I got a payday coming down the road, and I really have to worry about that. And look, I get it. It's the difference between intergenerational wealth, right, transgenerational wealth um, for a family, and just being a rich guy. Uh, and I understand that there's a profound difference to young men about that, and there's a profound difference to their agents. But boy, oh boy, I mean, this is as crass a move in sports, as you can see, and this is from the NCAA, which is the most crass sports organization in the history of mankind. You tell me, if you were an agent and you had McCaffrey, what would you tell him? Well, I would tell him that I will secure the base insurance policy with a large premium, parentheses, that a booster is going to take care of anyway, by the <laughs> way, which which covers you for debilitating injuries that are related to football. Now, that doesn't guarantee all risks, clearly. And if you do come back, you don't get the damages, so you're not as effective. So there is some risk, but it protects you. I would also say that McCaffrey is in a different position than Fournette, uh, uh, not only because McCaffrey's family is better off. Fournette, you could argue, really does need the money, although we don't want to get into social commentary here. But his dad played at the Broncos. His dad is a color commentator for the Broncos. 
Broncos. Uh, his dad, you know, may know better than risking the guy's credibility. Uh, you and I were at the Heisman. He was at his zenith. Uh, man, as far as I'm concerned, his credibility is taking a hit. And more important than that, my friend, is what's this going to do to a lot of the bowls uh, going forward? There are 41 of them. Uh, we've already talked about too many bowls. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what happens if, you know, 20 of the top stars in bowls that are kind of middle-level bowls anyway choose to sit it out? What does that mean starting next year? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the NCAA and its sponsors and its many benefactors have a lot riding on this. It, it is – they have – look, like it or not, I'm not a huge fan of the NCAA as a sporting apparatus. But like it or not, they have created this economic foundation – which schools depend on for their monetization of sports and their ability to fund other projects, apparently, like new stadiums and new weight rooms. But (laughs) in this situation, what does it mean to the TV deals? I mean, is there a litigation path here from an ESPN or from a sports network to say, Stanford, you know, you, you athlete, young athlete who has no rights anyway, are bound to perform in this game because our ratings and our ability to monetize it has been jeopardized. And I, look, I think, look, the proliferation of bowls, and, you know, I think the Times or somebody wrote a story about McCaffrey, and it was very tongue-in-cheek about the silly names of the bowls. But quite frankly, you know, they're big money, and if you could, you know, make fun of the name, but the stands are filled, the TV rights are paid for at an extortionate level, often. Uh, so why shouldn't these young men compete? Is it part of their contract with the school the social contract with their with their teammates. I guess it's all kind of up for grabs now. I mean, if Tim Duncan, you know, sitting out ten games a year, or veterans sitting out games as the season gets longer, or however, I mean, that's one way to look at it. But for colleges, bowl games are the thing, and this is a big revenue driver um, that will will possibly disappear. Uh, well, but hey, a lot of dimensions to it. Yeah, so s- sitting sitting out like Tim Duncan sitting out a few games in the middle of the season. Um, or LeBron James sitting out a couple of games, or sitting a uh, you know guy who's leading the league and hitting on the last game of the season. That's unseemly, but it's professional sports. To the NCAA, I mean, there has to be a, a, a contract with its players. Now, you could argue that college players are treated like chattel anyway, um, but at some point with the money involved, you wonder if there's a path to litigation around whether it's from the sponsor, whether it's from the TV channel that's bought the rights to the game, um, whether it's from fans or the university and the scholarship that they've you know, paid uh, for this young man or young woman to, to go to school. So it's, it's a moral hazard, as we say in the financial markets, uh, and I'd like to, like to see how it plays out. We could probably stand a few less bowls, but that's easy for me to say. It's tougher if I were the coach at Southwest Louisiana State who really depended on that third-tier bowl to make sure that my players' futures were a little bit more secure maybe or that my team was able to uh, keep playing the next year. Uh, great, great segue, great perspective on that. But, but before we start uh, on that piece, too many bowls, is it, is it chattel or, or cattle? Uh, same thing, right? It's just uh, it's cat, you have to feed cattle. You refer to chattel. Is that right? I I, you went to Harvard. I, I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, you tell right. me. You got, you got to listen. For, for our Scrabble games, we'll play between chattel and, and cattle. Now, here's the segue. The segue is, are there too many bulls? And, and the answer, by the way, the answer to a lot of that depends also on how you feel about the importance of the bulls as tourism generators. We all understand the economic impact of bowl week around the country is about 50 to $100 million per community. So, 
Some of these players have a moral obligation to be part of the deal that brings in the tourists and the alums. Generally, you bought, you mentioned the ESPN deals. They have about 75 to 80 percent of the bowls, even more. Fox has a couple outliers, so does CBS. Uh, but the bottom line is this is an ESPN-manufactured three-week, 41-game content monopolization, and the schools have to buy the tickets. The bowl committees make some of it up. The uh, institution is guaranteed the dollars. And at the end of the day, the risk is with the conferences, but also there is a, a performance standard where every team ought to be able to show up and play a good game. Um, I was at the Miami Beach Bowl. That's not a relevant game to anybody, but Michigan, uh, Central Michigan lost 55-10 to 10 yesterday. The mayor of Miami Beach, really happy. Why? Because they didn't show the stands, but they did show 85-degree weather. And ESPN, if, you, if you're watching uh, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday uh, and you're not at work because you don't have work, Boy, you want to be in Miami Beach. I did see a picture of the stands. It was like the 1977 Mets. Uh, <laughs> there yeah. was nobody yeah. there. Right. Or the, or the 2015 Marlins, by the way. So I made some comments yesterday since it was at Marlins Park that it felt like a Marlins game, which nobody liked. Not only the current bowl organizers, but the Marlins guys. So one comment alienates two, two factors. But bottom line is the bowls are watched by people who are more avid fans. They buy more. The advertisers like them. It is a moment in the sun for Geico or for Franklin American Mortgage or for national funding or for the San Diego County Credit Union, uh, who sponsors the uh, Poinsettia Bowl in San Diego. It used to be Poulin with the Weed Eater Independence Bowl, uh, the Buffalo Wild Wings Bowl, uh, the Duck Commander Bowl. Everybody makes fun of the name, but guess what? They're talking about the they're name. T- right, they're mentioning Let me ask you a question, because you probably know this or understand this better than, than anyone. Um, how competitive is it for municipalities and locations to get a bowl? Uh, is, it, is it kind of a mini-Olympic bidding war, or is, is there a package put together? Is there a, a template that these cities use to, to bring a bowl in? Yeah, great answer, great question. There's a moratorium now, basically, on the 41 until the NCAA figures out what happens with the playoff and how it ripples down. But when it was 25, expanded to 41, every city that had a dome said, let's get our pro team to be the marketing expert. Let's be let's have the public sector sports authority to be the owner. Let's go to ESPN. Let's find a time, even an outrageous time, Monday afternoon is a window and let's bid on it. And that's exactly what they did. So Toronto had a game, didn't work out very well for them. Uh, Shreveport has a game, amazing history. Uh, I'm going to the Bahamas, by the way. I'll report back to you next week for the Popeye's Bahama Bowl. There will be four people in the stands, but I'll be one of them. And at the end of the day, this is one of those things where uh, there is a major interest in generating these bowls. 41 could be 50 if there Mm. weren't that informal moratorium. What's your handicap of the commercial success of the Bahamas game, or is it a commercial success even that they have it? It's a commercial success that they have it. The Bahama Tourism Board throws some money at it. Uh, Popeye's Fried Chicken sponsors the game. 
advertising buys all the way through the game. It's the only game outside the United States as far as the bowl. So there's coverage for that. I'll be guilty of that. I'll be talking about that next week. And so you can't measure it traditionally. Miami Beach threw money at the game yesterday. You ask the mayor of Miami Beach, who's a big businessman, big property guy, if you were doing an ROI analysis on it, would you buy it? He said, no, but that's not what we're doing. We're doing a uh, awareness analysis. Uh, People are thinking about it. Who's in the Bahamas Bowl, by the way? Oh, by the way, so this is great. I don't know if anybody else knows this, but it is the Old Dominion Monarchs and the Eastern Michigan, I don't know what their name is, but it's something that rhymes with fighting. I think it's the writings. I don't know what they are. But by the way, Atlantis puts these guys up with a very large three-night minimum. Mm. They have a major barbecue through the streets of Nassau. They play it at Thomas Robinson Stadium, which is a glorified high school stadium. Mm. Then they all get back on a plane and go home. And I'll be doing that, too. So I'm actually kind of looking forward to that because on my bucket list, go to the Bahamas Bowl. It's on it's on the stove. It's not on the front burner, but it was on the stove. Really? And it comes Friday afternoon. Uh, it'll be off the stove. That's a fairly modest bucket list, Rick. I, I think you could shoot a little, <laughs> aim a little higher, you know? Yeah. Well, just remember, I just got back from Dubai. <laughs> okay. so, so the bucket list could be tempered by some Fair of this enough. stuff. So, yeah. Well, but let's. And by the way, I will be playing golf, which is a great segue. It is the holiday. Um, Tiger Woods' TGR design firm, uh, fresh off of Texas and Mexico successes, has been picked by the Chicago Parks District to design two nine hole championship golf courses called Jackson Park and South Shore, which are urban courses. He wants right. to turn it into one. 18-year-old golf course, and what he wants to do is have a major tournament there. This is a good example of a public-private partnership. Tiger Woods is, oh, by the way, got to raise the $30 million, including his design fee. He'll discount it. That's what he's giving back. But they're trying to bring golf to the inner cities, and Tiger Woods has been the Pied Piper. I like the idea because even if he's not great on the course, he's doing some good stuff off. Does it work? Uh, I mean, the idea that you have an 18-hole course in in an urban area in, in Chicago does it work to really build awareness of golf with the community, or is it just a place for people from you know around the other parts of the town who might go to the suburbs to play, to play to play there? And will it will if, it will it have the impact? Uh, my friend, if you do it right, in other okay. words, the first tee of Illinois has to have a major girl and boy training program to produce golfers that are public parks golfers just down the road in indianapolis we've covered it the lpga and guggenheim life sponsored a major event called the women in tech championship which will happen next labor day stem training robotics high schools junior high schools with the women golfers so you gotta have more then just design a golf course. You got to have an event, and you got to have a charitable component to it that ties into a foundation. Okay, if, I always talk about investing. If I were, if this were an investment, I'd be shorting it. I, I don't, and it's not a knock on the community, and it's not a knock on the golf establishment. I just feel like there is an invisible, or sometimes very visible, social wall between golf and most American communities. You know, and again, we've talked about this. I mean, look, golf needs a farm system for recreational players, right? People are playing right. less, they're spending less. So they, they need to tap a new audience. And I understand the, you know, the other side of this equation. Uh, but boy, I think, it's a, I think it's a tall order. Yeah, well, it's a tall order and it is a, a short buy if you were an investor in it. Uh, as you said, luckily you're not because this is primarily a park system deal. They cavalierly say they're gonna raise 
$30 million bucks to get a lot of this done with the public sector kicking in. We'll believe it when we see it. Tiger Woods is going to help. But look, it's an expensive sport. Right. And a lot of people would have never uh, gotten into it if Tiger didn't pave the way already. Right. And, by the way, there is a charitable component and a foundation component where you've got to go the extra mile. Because like, just like you said, if you were making a traditional business investment, you wouldn't do it. Right. So it's either don't get it done or you got to find some people, some other people to do it. And the good thing about this, by the way, is we, we haven't heard about Tiger recently. He tried his comeback. He may come back. He's practicing around here. We sneak uh, views of him down here in South Florida practicing. Uh, his swing looks good, but compared to mine, anybody's does. <laughs> so we'll, we'll have to see what happens long term. But this is a really good kind of holiday related thing that Tiger Woods is doing off the court. Uh, off the course. And just generally, before we get into our guest, what's your concept? You know, Charles Barkley was pretty clear. Athletes aren't necessarily role models. I don't want to be a role model to anybody. Uh, what's your general sense of an athlete's obligation to be a role model to kids? I, I don't see it as um, a moral thing, believe it or not. I see it as more the kind of Sinatra criticism of George Michael. Um, you know, you owe something to your fans because they've made you wealthy. You are a role model by default because you're in the public eye. Without that fan base and without some cultivation of your own character or some cultivation of your own place uh, in the public eye, you'd be like, you know, a second string second baseman in the 50s, you know, working in a car lot in the off season and playing baseball, <laughs> you know, in the summer. So I think the wealth that's created around these sports really does put some imperative commercial um, primarily, uh, but I think for better players and for better people, um, uh, it, there is a moral imperative. I, I do believe that these guys are role models, um, and not just for their batting stances or the way they wear their hats or the way they comport themselves, um, but for how they use their gifts or, what's, or what, what they've earned to you know, help other people around. I remember Mel Blunt from the old Pittsburgh Steelers. He came right. to he we we did a Big Brothers thing years ago at uh, Giant Stadium at the Meadowlands. I was a Big Brother. And I got to throw a touchdown. Talk about bucket list! I got to throw a touchdown pass to my little brother um, on the field at Giant Stadium. Wow! That's uh, did they put you on a ladder or, or how did how did you do it? Well, I was playing seven year old. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> but um, but Bad but shot. but Bad I remember shot, I remember Mel Blunt saying you know he had it was a little bit of a cliche but from his position and how he saw his life was to always be reaching up with one hand and pulling people up with the other. And I think athletes, because of the demographic mix, because of their exposure, th there's, a, there's, there's a duty to do that. And uh, it doesn't include sitting out bowl games, uh, <laughs> and it doesn't include yeah. driving while intoxicated. Well, and it's a great segue. Um, you can have a great Christmas. Uh, next week, we'll review our respective top 2016 sports business stories, and we'll debate those. And right now, Bill Diggs, who has been the uh, CEO, COO of the Alonzo Morning Charitable Foundation, recognizes one of the best in the business, talks about obligations, fundraising, giving back, and the like. Here's Bill Diggs. Rick Harrow keeping score in the boardroom. The holiday season broadly defined is upon us, uh, Thanksgiving, but uh, the the Christmas, uh, December, let's call it the general holiday season. And, you know, we've talked for a while from a business perspective on this show about sports as a healing agent, uh, sports uh, as a community 
uh, organizer, a community galvanizer. If you don't think so, just look at Cleveland four months ago after the Cavaliers and, and uh, Chicago four months later after they came back from 3-1 to beat the other Cleveland team, but yet five million person at a parade, and on and on, and especially as we heal after some disruptive political rhetoric, sports is the best way to do that. We've said that, but hopefully we can get into a specific uh, mentor in this area, the, Mor- the Morning Family Foundation, Alonzo Morning. Uh, he's raised over $25 million to support various youth development programs. But we'll let Bill Diggs, who is the president of the Morning Family Foundation, explain all that. Bill, I hope I didn't take away your thunder at the outset. No, as a matter of fact, I, I, I like that. I'm, I'm glad that other people you know, are, are paying attention and recognize it. We're really proud of what we've done, and, and we're here to help kids, and so we take no ownership. We want for people to join us. Well, you have a, hap- a background of, of, of interesting public-private partnership issues as the CEO of the Miami-Dade Chamber of Commerce for eight years, and obviously a growth mission for the retention and growth of minority businesses, and helping to put the Miami Arena together in the heat originally, as I did years ago. It's a challenge. It's a diverse community. It's a multi-generational community. We all understand that. But from a national perspective, uh, now with the Morning Family Foundation, uh, give me an idea of the structure of the foundation and and what its mandate is. Well, sure. You know, our, our structure is, is is relatively simple, but becoming more complex every day. Um, you know, we are, are are truly built to be, if you will, the backstop for two nonprofit organizations, and I'm going to say two and a half, kind of sort of, in Miami. One being Honey Shine, the mentoring program for girls at Tracy Morning Alonzo's wife, um, funded and started um, some. 15 years ago, and then our, and then our second is really the, the, the mother pearl of our organization. It's called the Overtown Youth Center, um, and it's an 11-year-old building, 25,000-square-foot facility where we meet over 500 kids a day, um, you know, and, and we fund every bit of that um, in regards to helping them to improve the lives of disadvantaged youth in a specific community called Overtown, Miami. Uh, Overtown is the name of the community. Of course, it's, it's, in a, it's you know, literally... Um, less than a mile as a crow flies from the heart of downtown. And so the goal of the Morning Family Foundation is to, is to you know, make sure that we successfully fund both of those organizations so they can continue doing the great programmatic work that they need to for the kids that are really situated within Miami-Dade County. And we've got some, of course, that have moved and grown up into the you know, South Broward area. But that's essentially our job. Uh, I've got a small staff of of just four people that run the Morning Family Foundation, but yet both of the uh, organization's uh, executive directors for Honeyshine and, and Overtown Youth Center, um, they kind of roll up through our organization from a management, you know, um, um, dotted line perspective. And we've got about 60 employees now that focus every day on the growth and the, you know, and, and the retention of young children and trying to give them a better life. Um, we've since grown, though, you know, like I said before, and why I say two and a half is because, you know, you are probably aware, and maybe many of your listeners are not, that Alonzo and Tracy Morning actually have a public high school in Miami, Florida that has got their name on the building. It's called the Alonzo and Tracy Morning High School. And so we also do some, some programmatic work and push within the public school system, and so we try to help there as well. Uh, you know, the bottom line of all of this clearly is that you – 
are very charitable, philanthropic. You know your way around the South Florida and the business community generally. But Alonzo um, spent his time early on being a world-class athlete, Georgetown in the heat. And I guess my big question is, when do you start planning, if you're him, and obviously working with him for a while, to create a successful foundation? And how do you separate yourself from the foundation pack from, and I'm just being cynical for just a perspective on it. There are some who's, who athletes would say, all right, it's important for me to give back to, to make sure I check the box that says you got to do it to get a bigger contract down the road. Alonzo Mourning and his family are special. They're not like that. But what, how, 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 when do you start focusing on the charitable aspect and the giving back? Well, you know, I, I think it's two things. Either, you, either you're, you're, you're trained in it as an athlete because of the people that have been engaged and involved in your life, or you kind of learn it by really understanding that, you know, many of these athletes, you know, they, they themselves as children grew up disadvantaged, and, and, and their way out of this horrible condition has been athletics, right? I mean, you know, you, you, it's, it's the great American story where, you know, a kid is, has never had anything, and he says, you know, I'm going to work hard and, and, and bounce this basketball or throw this football with the hopes that if I grow stronger and bigger, that I can one day do it. But the neat thing is that Alonzo had the, probably one of the best mentors in the world, and Sandy Treat, the, the, the you know, mother who literally raised him from a, from, a, from a child as a foster care child. And then he was lucky enough uh, and, and, uh, you know, to, to have John Thompson, one of the greatest coaches of all time at Georgetown, you know, with the Jesuit education he got there, that really helped him to understand that, you know, there go you but for the grace of, of God. And so, you know, he grew up, you know, in, in a giving community of people that helped him to understand that, you know, we're here to help. And so when he came to Miami, for him it was a simple transition because it was something that was inbred in him. Um, now, the most difficult thing that, that Alonzo has had to do is to take the quantum leap from saying as an athlete, I can do all of it myself, you know, and then having the wherewithal and business acumen to build a sophisticated nonprofit. And so, you know, he's had guys along the way, like his business manager, Alan First, you know, and, and his agent, um, you know, Jeff Wexler, that, that really said, look, man, you know, if this thing is going to survive you, if it's going to be, if, as you would say, multi-generational, you know, you know and, and make sure that, that the legacy of Alonzo survives long after he's gone, you've got to build a company, right? And so, you know, I've, I've been with Alonzo in one form or another as chairman of, his, of the board of his organization, as a member of the board of his organization while I was with the chamber. And so when I stepped away from the chamber and kind of decided to retire, you know, him and I had a quick conversation, and I'll say it was quick um, because, you know, I had helped to recruit the past executive director slash president who was going back home to Los Angeles, California, and said, you've got to find me somebody else, you know. And then he said, wait a minute, what are you doing? <laughs> you know. And uh, I grabbed this thing three years ago, and, and it has been the best decision I've ever made. So we've built a real company, of which Alonzo and his wife Tracy are members of the board. But we, we run this thing as any successful nonprofit would, uh, without his money, if you will, but with his celebrity. Um, and we go out and, and convince friends of his, friends of ours, and then other strong community supporters you know, to kind of join us in this. And then we make sure that the product that they see, their return on investment, is something that, that they can be proud of. 
Well, Bill, it, it's you know it's it's interesting because it's you describe it, and I would even argue it's not that simple because uh, there there's a there's a clutter out there, not good charities and good people, but to rise above the presumption of fundraising and sustain is something that is quite remarkable. Uh, and Alonzo Mourning, obviously a big name, but no longer playing. Uh, how easy is it, or what are the techniques that allow you to say, all right, we're going to build a, 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 a post-transcendental generational legacy, and we're going to build a company that transcends Alonzo Mourning and talks about the cause. Uh, I would argue it's easier said than done. So how do you do it? You, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. When, when I look at it, I will tell you that it's literally the toughest thing that we can do. Um, and, and that is to not convince people to give, because once we give people a vehicle to donate, there are people in this, in, in, in our America that are wonderful, you know, beautiful and just really giving people. And, and, and that is, non-political affiliation agnostic folk, right? They just, they don't care if they're Republican, Democrat, or Independent. They know the needs of our children that can't help themselves. And so essentially our goal has been to build a good team. I mean, so we go out to the best employees that we can get, you know, devoid of whether or not they've got nonprofit experience or not. And, and my whole goal with my organization is to say, listen, you know, as a nonprofit, you know, we don't pay stock at the end of the year as a private company would back out. So our shareholder value exists in us being able to take whatever dollars we've gotten and roll back into the program for the next year. And so we set this thing up with the goal that every year, you know, if you will, we're going to succeed by building a dynamic program set, right? Um, and so, you know, I, luckily enough, in, in my past business life, I've, I've, you know, built a couple of successful companies and, you know, in the for-profit world as well, as well as the non-profit and worked for some of the best. And so for me, it wasn't as much difficult as much as it was to recruit the right team, you know, and, and then to maintain your team, you know. And, and you're right. I mean, there, there's a lot of junk out there. We know that. Um, but we decided that we're going to talk about the positive things that we do. And then as a leadership group, Alonzo and Tracy and our board, they get it. They understand it. You know, so we have meetings, and they're there to really deal with the policy. They're not there to change our business set. But we're growing, too, right, because, you know, our organization now, um, our center has been around for almost 12 years. Um, it's 24,000 square feet, and we've literally outgrown. I've got a waiting list of kids to get into my program. And so we're about to literally double the size of the center that we've got, and we're going to build another. So we're going to be in a capital campaign to raise about $18 million to rebuild both these buildings so we can continue the work that we do. Bill Diggs, is there, is there, are there some things you can't control that you don't sleep well at night worrying about? Uh, I would assume it used to be Alonzo getting injured, but uh, that's not as important anymore. It would be nice to have him healthy, but it doesn't matter. he doesn't win basketball games anymore. Is it the economy? Is it the tax regulations? Are there some things that are certainly more demanding and and influential than others yeah yeah they are and and and, if, and 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 i think you're right on point in the sense of it being you know the economy listen I mean, you know a, a robust economy means that people are doing well enough to continue to give right i mean so for us that's a key indicator if you will but then also too you know we have to have you know leadership if you will at the local and state level that embrace what we do. You know, we, we try our best not to get engaged in politics, but we watch it closely. 
And then, I, and then the second thing is this, you know, we, we recognize that the, the, the kids that we're dealing with, they're poor. I mean, you know, we can't sugarcoat it. I mean, these kids don't have anything, you know, and, and our ability to, to, to convince corporations, you know, to help to engage us is really, really important, not just people giving dollars, but organizations that are going to embrace the fact that when these kids get to a certain level that they can give them jobs. So a healthy Miami-Dade, you know, state, you know, of Florida, you know, United States of America um, economy is, is key for us because we've got to give these kids hope. We can't take them all the way to our, to our program, make them smart, get them to college, and then they not have anywhere to go. So these corporations embracing this is important. Last question, Bill Diggs, maybe the most important one. You know, Charles Barkley has started the opinion, falsely or not, that athletes are not role models, don't tell me to be one. And obviously, Alonzo Mourning on the other end of the spectrum with some fine philanthropists who want to do good and do great and do well. What is your take on the obligation of a professional athlete to give back? Is it inherent? Is it automatic? Is it optional? Uh, what's the story? Well, I, I don't think it's optional. I think it is inherent. I think that, you know, listen, you, you can't ask for the entire community to come out and support you, pay the kind of fees that they pay, you know, and then you take all that money you put in your pocket and, 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 and say, I don't, I don't have to help anybody. You have to reinvest in the community that's invested in you. And it's not just athletes. I, I, think, I think it is the American way. I think as, 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 as the greatest country in the world, we have to understand that no one's coming to save us, that we have to do for each other what folks have done for us. And when we sometimes conveniently want to forget that, I say shame on you. You know, I, I, think, it makes, I think it makes no sense because when a child watches you, whether you want for him to watch you or not, he emulates you. And all of us have, you know, that responsibility to be the change we want to see. And that's not just the damn slogan. I mean, it's, it's, it's life. As it, as it is, I tell people all the time, I say, you know, you want a kid not to rob you, give him a job, and he won't have to. And I'm not saying that, you know, that, that robbing somebody makes it all right. I'm just talking about the reality of life, you know, and that's what we are attempting to change, and athletes are sitting at the forefront of that because we have made them that. And so you can't have one and not have the other. It, it, you must do what you're supposed to do. What a way to end. Bill Diggs, if there were more foundation guys like Bill, we'd be in a better place. Thank you very much, and happy holiday. Rick Haro, be on the scoreboard. See you in a minute. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso. 